Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Malidoma Sume. Chapter 6, Life Begins at Nancy. The boarding school was a fortress, a state within a state, bursting out of nowhere, a garden of order within the chaos of the African jungle. Rows of houses more beautiful even than Father Malloy's mission house were spread out among trees, gardens, and flowered pathways. Their stone and concrete walls painted bright, glittering white, shocked the eye and intimidated the newcomer. They were all covered with tin roofs, and most of them had wooden ceilings. Next to the teacher's residence, the church was the tallest. The chapel was built of cement, bricks, and steel. Its high ceiling was a complex arabesque of steel on top of which was laid a metallic cover that resonated loudly when it rained. Then came the classrooms and the dormitories, each of which contained over a hundred of the Spartan metal beds. Each classroom was big enough for 80 students although a good hundred were sometimes stuck in there during morning classes. In all, the institution contained well over 500 children, aged 12 to 21. This titanic religious establishment was the dream come true of the missionary crusade that had followed imperialism into the continent of Africa. The kids came from everywhere in French West Africa, Mali, Niger, Togo, the Ivory Coast, and Benin. Some were brought there fresh from baptism after a few years of parochial brainwashing. Others, schooled privately as the protégés of white missionaries, arrived there, still longing for their white father. There were two sections to this religious campus. We called them divisions. The first division, nicknamed Roman Campus, was occupied by about 300 kids from 12 to 16. It consisted of an immense classroom building, two dormitories, and a spiritual lecture hall. The lecture hall was where we met every evening at 7 to hear a priest lecture on a religious subject, usually the life of some European saint whose anniversary fell on that day. Some student usually bore the same name as the saint, in which case it was that person's birthday too. We did not have formal birthdays. Since being baptized meant being reborn a lot cleaner, which is why our traditional name was replaced by a new and better Christian name, the anniversary of that saint was also the birthday of the student who had borrowed his name. Evening lectures were tedious. To listen to God on an empty stomach is like refraining from laughter at the grimaces of a monkey. Thanks to the one freedom we had, to daydream, it was possible to endure the lecture. If, for the most part, we looked attentive, the priest did not care very much what we did as long as there was silence. There were three classrooms in the school building. The first, the septium, was for the newly arrived seminarians who had to be taught everything from composition and geography to mathematics and science. French was the language that carried all this baggage. 
the second class from the 6 a.m. The 6 a.m. was reversed for those who had survived their first year in this institution. The third classroom was the third classroom housed the 5 a.m. Those preparing to enter the upper division, which the students call the Greek campus. The same subjects were taught to everybody, but according to their appropriate levels. The upper division had five classrooms instead of three and was housed in two dormitory buildings similar in size to those of the lower division. Their classroom building was adjacent to ours. The refectory stood alone, away from the dorm and the school. Divided into two sections, it belonged to both divisions. The upper division boys, the Greeks, did not like to mix with the Romans, nor were the two groups authorized to mix outside of school hours. The Greeks had their own spiritual lecture hall situated next to their classroom building, and an extra structure called the mechanics building where all kinds of skilled activities, sewing and weaving, woodworking, metalworking, and indoor athletics took place every Thursday and Sunday afternoon. The higher division ranged from one to 200 teenagers and students in their early 20s. In front of the classroom building was the basketball court, the athletic field, and the soccer field. There was no library. Each student, each teacher, had a sizable collection of books sufficient for the specific intellectual and spiritual needs of the subject he taught. Each teacher taught one subject. All books were in French. Second language training included English, even though there was no book about it. Latin was a requirement, but it too had no book. There was no German or any other European language taught. The students were encouraged to borrow books from the teacher. One thing was certain. This coming together of all of us, not just strangers from the same tribe, but strangers from many different tribal communities, demonstrated the possibility of unity amid tribal diversity. Suddenly, French became useful far beyond its power to introduce us to literacy. It became a means of linking us to each other. It was our only bond within the heterogeneous community assembled by the Jesuits. There was no need to enforce the speaking of French here or to ban the use of local languages. Most of us had none we could remember and besides, Who would understand them? Because my Dakara friends from the mission school were scattered throughout the mass of kids in the seminary, it was not easy for us to stick together. Reader's note, this is exactly the same program procedure that was done to Africans removed from the continent and and put into the diaspora. This is the same way African-Americans who were enslaved here in America were treated, taken from different tribes, no language, no culture, no spirituality, no connection to family, cut cut connections to family. Same thing, It's, it's same exact thing. The seminary at Nancy had appropriated the name and the land of a nearby village occupied by a tribe whose members watched the whole maneuver astonished and speechless, horrified at being politely asked to quit their own land.
but in the eyes of the Jesuits, how could such a theft be considered a crime? Who would dare to question the divine need for land? The students had no contact with the villagers. Only the priests who ran the seminary did, and that took the form of a church in the village. The smell of France and its impressive order prevailed menacingly yet majestically amid the stubborn, surviving perfume of the wild. No one could survive in an institution like this unless he developed the habit of removing his mind from the vocation that had been imposed upon him. The steel structure of its very architecture spoke resolutely to each student about the might of the god the white man served. The seminary had ripped nature from its order and reordered it into concrete houses, into paths, lawns, flower gardens, canals, and roads, into a new beauty that man served assiduously because it was divine. Outside of the institution's boundaries, we could smell the unmediated perfume of the wild and glimpse the cold, silent beauty of its mysterious order. We often went out on botanical field trips identifying and studying an endless variety of plants. Way off in the distance, carefully separated from the boys, was the novitiate, a similar but smaller institution for girls, but it would be years before we enjoyed any contact with that place. This is a day of miracle and wonder, a day when our Lord Jesus Christ has proven once again that his heroic death on the cross was not in vain dead because he wanted to save his children from perdition, he is now resurrected to prove that he meant what he did, that his suffering was a commitment. The Lord died with you in mind. Thus, you are Christ's chosen disciples, endowed with the vocation of the priesthood to rescue, in the manner of the apostles, the erring souls of your brothers and sisters and to return them to the divine path. It was a hot Easter Sunday in the seminary of Nancy. The mass was more solemn than usual because Easter marks a peak time in the calendar, sometimes on the same level as Christmas, but sometimes considered higher because birth is common and resurrection is not. Above all, it was the end of Lent, which for most of us was a period of gastronomic deprivation. During Lent, the school was vegetarian, and for a lot of us, this was dreadful. Why eat grass because God was in pain and needed us to support him by some form of deprivation? Father Superior was presiding over the Mass, which was celebrated by the entire professional corps, all Jesuits. Dressed in a majestic chasuble with crosses at front and back, Father Superior displayed a dramatic flair in all his movements as if he himself were the center of the event and the attendant crowd. His concelebrants looked dedicated to. Each one knew his role so well that he performed it almost mechanically. For the past 10 years or so, Father Superior had been the sole leader of the Nancy Resurrection Mass. As the director of this impressive institution, he always presided over the masses and often delivered the homily after the gospel was read by another colleague. 
Ordinarily, Father Superior spoke about the meaning of the Christian holiday that was being celebrated. He often compared Christ's resurrection to Africa's awakening into Christ and never missed an opportunity to glorify the Jesuit order for its splendid achievements in black Africa. To him, every man and woman who was brought to the baptismal font was a resurrected being following the example of Christ and an example of the appropriateness appropriateness of religious colonialism in black Africa. But this day, for some reason, breaking his own rules, he decided to speak about our vocation. You are candidates within a very special discipleship in Christ's community. Not only have you been baptized in his name, but you will dedicate your lives to the service of his cause. This is important because our world is crumbling, torn apart by the work of Satan and his many followers throughout this land of God. Born sinners, your people grew in sin. They cultivated a fellowship that glorified in the practice of those very acts that every day kill our Lord Jesus Christ, who died precisely for these macabre sins. But do you know why these sinners still live? They still live because they are still given a chance, the chance to repent and to be saved. I suppose there is no need to say that every simple action you perform here in this holy place increases the chances of their salvation as well as bringing it closer to end. The bulk of your task resides there among these disciples of evil who are every day blackened by the blood of Satanism, stone worship, false beliefs and attachments to a world structure devoid of sanctity. While these conditions still exist, you must not sleep until the light of resurrection is brought forth to them. This is the calling to which you must respond. This is the light you must intensify and keep alive every day. This is the good news you must bring out and disseminate to your people. As they suffocate in the steel grip of the devil's hand, only you can come to their rescue because Christ was resurrected for you. This is your calling. Father Superior had a way of making you feel sorry, anxious, and guilty. I wondered how I could possibly go tell my people to drop their age-old traditional beliefs and habits and be prepared to be saved because somebody had died for them without even telling them. It had been so long since I had left these people that I could barely remember how wicked their spiritual life supposedly was, what it was that they were doing wrong in the first place. And in any case, would they recognize me wearing a white robe and a rosary when and if I returned to them? Though Nancy was sealed away from the outside world, many stories about the deeds of the colonials had slipped in. For example, in a nearby village, missionaries had attempted to convert the people by using the symbol of Christ on the cross. One unfortunate man had taken the risk of objecting. This man is not black, he said. He never came to any black village. No one among his disciples was black. So how could he have died for us too? Are you trying to transfer the guilt of your ancestors upon us? Look, your ancestors killed somebody they should not have killed. 
then they found out that this man was a divine man so they decided to share their regret with the rest of the world our ancestors never told us that you had committed such a crime against humanity and if this man was a god mother earth would have told us about it before you arrived here be clear about what you are saying it may or may not have been a coincidence that this man fell into the hands of the territorial army and nothing was ever heard of him again calling to have been grabbed by father Malloy out of my parents compound while they were away working to have been driven to the mission on a BMW and to this seminary light years away from home just so that I could go tell them later that they should believe in Christ these were the thoughts that were always with me after I came to Nancy seminary between the higher division and the lower division buildings were the faculty buildings, or as we call them, the Pantheon. Each of the two dozen Jesuit missionaries in charge of the school had a divine nickname. They all knew they had nicknames, but they pretended they did not. Father Superior was called Zeus, for his quick temper and love of punishment were legendary. Slim and tall in his white turtleneck robe, he never smiled though some students claim that he did on rare occasions. I don't think he knew how. Zeus did not teach anything profane. He was a great, oft-times bombastic and convoluted deliverer of homilies. His assistant, a white-haired World War II veteran, was called Sila because his voice was so thin one could barely hear him. He sang well, although his voice was nasal. He was so emotional that he cried each time he spoke to us about the holy war waged against Nazi Germany. This was a favorite subject. He worked closely with the Bursar, whom we nicknamed Hermes because he was gone all the time to run errands for the seminary. He was in charge of feeding us and did his job with dedication. He was a close friend of another priest we named Bacchus. Bacchus was in a good mood only when under the influence when it was his turn to say mass, he consecrated more wine than he should and drank it all. So, each time he presided over the mass, he came out of it drunk and cheerful. Bacchus never got angry at anyone. He was dull and even-tempered, therefore not dangerous. This was not the case with Cerberus tall and heavily bearded with terrifying eyes that rolled in their orbits, this priest from Holland was a friend of no one, including his colleagues. He barked instead of talking, yelled instead of singing, and changed color at the slightest shift of events. We called him Cerberus because he once caught a villager stealing flowers from a garden. He grabbed the poor sinner by the neck and almost shook him to death like a dog with a rat. When he let him fall, you could not tell on which side of existence the poor lad was situated. On the north central side of the campus was the double-storied building where the professorial corpse resided. 
At the heart of the campus, its steeple overlooking the entire institution was the church, the tallest and newest building in the seminary. It was the place we went first after waking up and last before going to bed. The church was beautiful. Inside there was space for nearly a thousand people. It had a balcony too, but we never knew who sat there. The front pews were reserved for the people of the lower division who sang alto and soprano. The back rows were for the higher division, the tenors and basses. Singing was a major part of life at Nancy and we rehearsed in this building as well as prayed. Singing was good for the psyche. It established an independent relationship between us and God and song carried our emotions more readily than the rote recitation of canonic prayers. Meetings between the higher division and the lower division took place at the church every morning and at the refectory where we took our meals every morning, noon, and evening. Our daily schedule ran like this. 5.30 a.m. wake up. 6 a.m. morning prayers. 6.30 a.m. mass. 7.30 a.m. gymnastics, athletics. 8 a.m. breakfast. 9 a.m. first class. 10 a.m. second class. 11 a.m. third class. 12 p.m. lunch hour. 1 p.m. siesta or rest period. 3 p.m. fourth class. 4 p.m. manual work. 5 p.m. study hour. 6 p.m. spiritual lecture. 6.30 p.m. evening prayers. 7 p.m. dinner slash recreation. 8.30 study hour, higher division, vespers, lower division. 8.45 p.m. bedtime, lower division. 9.30 p.m. vespers, the higher division. 10 p.m. bedtime, higher division. 10.30 p.m. lights out everywhere. At 5.30 a.m., one of the priests would come into the dorm, clap his hands, turn the lights on, and scream, Benedicamus Domino. We were supposed to scream back, Dio gratias, but most of the time we couldn't waken fast enough to respond immediately, so the priest would have to repeat his morning greeting until satisfied with the general response. Then he would walk down the aisle and pinch those whose sleep had survived the screaming ceremony. In the meantime, those who were up grabbed their towels and went for a quick morning ablution. This was taken in a cement trough about 60 feet long. Two feet above the trough was a pipe. When the faucet was turned on, cold water poured out of holes punched into the pipe. Our washing was done in silence, for silence was one of the most important rules in that divine realm. From wake up till sports, free talking was forbidden. In the beginning, it felt like the worst kind of rudeness to walk next to another person without saying a word. In the village, such behavior would mean that a funeral had just ended. It was hard to keep your mouth shut for so long, but you get used to it fast. Anybody who talked would have his butt put to fire. Speech does not have to be uttered out loud. I discovered that I could comply with the rule of silence by simply creating speech within myself in the form of a dialogue with an imaginary person. Topics were not lacking, for I could never stop thinking about what was going on back home. Trying to tap into the activities of my family opened up a vast field of mental speculation. These thoughts sometimes led to tremendous anger as I discovered that I was, after all, an abandoned person longing for a culture I no longer had. But... If my thoughts often led to sad and angry feelings, they, off, they also offered a cozy resting place to a mind 
that could not deal with the same bland diet every day. I learned the art of retreating within my thoughts quickly and well. By doing this, it was easy to eliminate the uncomfortable feeling of the presence of my walking partner without impinging upon his space. Another aspect of silence is the opportunity it provides us to discipline our mouths and to learn to attend to the still, small voice from within. Consequently, if the seminary was quiet most of the time, for me at least, this quiet was only external. I learned to swim at Nancy. It was not an amusing experience. Though it was the appointed job of the higher division kids to teach the lower division of the art of swimming, we were better off knowing how to ahead of time than being submitted to their ministrations. The lower division experienced the higher division as tough, even brutal. Ultimately, you had to be the protege of one of them before you could ever find peace. So, it was vital to become friends with somebody. I was taught to swim by a student from the higher division who called himself Karib. As I stood on the shore of the river watching him approach, my heart was pounding with fear and apprehension. He walked up to me and said, Hi, ready for the water baptism? Better be. Ah, uh-uh. ah. He grabbed me in his arms and lifted me up into the air. I tried to resist his grip, but I was like a mouse between the paws of a cat. He did not even notice that I was fighting back. Karib walked to the edge of the water and jumped high into the air, still holding me in his arms like a pet. We shot into the middle of the water. All of a sudden, I could not breathe. I opened my mouth and inhaled water, but Karib did not look like he intended to swim up to the surface. We stayed there at at the bottom of the river, and I could see his globular eyes glaring at me while his grip tightened. Feeling like I was being crushed in a narrow cage, I tried every signal I knew in a supreme effort to communicate to Karib that I was drowning. Every breath was so liquid that I could feel the water rush into my belly. Karib only squeezed me tighter. Finally, he swam up to the surface and left me on the shore saying, Enough for today. You were pretty good. I'll see you Sunday. Karib did not seem to notice that I was vomiting water. The experience was so horrible, I could not help crying. A sudden sense of insecurity and vulnerability produced the specter of death in me. My sufferings at Father Malloy's mission school seemed nothing in comparison to the swimming lessons. I finally stopped leaking water, but I continued to cry, sitting at the edge of the river with my feet in the water. My memory surged backward in time for a season of comfort that had not been available anywhere since my separation from my native compound. The only emotions I could feel were anger and sadness, mixed with an inexpressible feeling of betrayal. My past contained nothing to feel joyful about except perhaps those faint memories of the sweetness that I felt besides my grandfather and my mother. They appeared briefly in the panorama of my memory. I was struggling hard to produce a clean, lucid image of home from the dark negative of a four-year-old brain. I tried to pray to God, but it was like praying to the very person who had caused my misfortune. When that failed to bring me a sense of relief, I tried hard to recall Grandfather's face and wished hard that his spirit would do the job if God would not. 
I kept thinking that God had too many people to take care of, too many who were more important in his eyes than I was, so I prayed instead to the spirit of Buckeye, thinking that at least he would hear me since he did not have so many people to worry about. Stop making a fool of yourself, someone said in the midst of my mourning and praying. I rubbed my eyes rapidly and took a look. The face was somewhat similar. It was another kid, 13 years old, like me, and a little smaller in size. He had just come out of the water as if he had gone in intentionally. Embarrassed, I stopped crying, but I could not help complaining. But he almost killed me. Who? Karib. He didn't know. Everybody here will pretend they didn't know. I've been at the bottom of the river, too. If you think your mom will come and take you away, you can keep on crying. But if you don't, you'd better keep an eye open and think for yourself. Who are you anyway? I asked. Antoine. My name is O. Antoine. And you? Patrice. Patrice or may I come from? Doesn't matter anymore. We are all here. Come on. Let's go back into the water, Patrice, and I'll teach you a couple of things. Otherwise, next time you'll be a peeled banana by the time that Karib releases you. I figured that if the two of us could not prevail against Karib, we could at least do him some damage. Although it was unlikely we would ever have the courage to attack him, the thought made me feel better. I had found a friend, and that evening we sat at the same table together. We did not say very much to each other, but friendship does not need words. It often speaks louder in silence. As I grew older, I discovered that life in a boarding school where discipline is at its most rigorous triggered a psychological reaction that forced students under this kind of dispensation to invent new ways of existing as a community. Older students looked at young newcomers as girls and possible sexual partners. Their friendliness was stimulated by an attraction that could not find real girls to satisfy itself. So it settled on a substitute. There were as many boys in their 20s as there were in their early teens. My first two years in the seminary were ones of intense nightmares and deep psychological trauma for one important reason. I was shaped like a girl. At age 13, my breasts were the size of apples. This condition was attributed to the starchy food we ate, and the doctor said it would melt away as I grew older. Our diet was essentially vegetarian of the worst kind. We ate leaves from trees we didn't know, for usually there was no name to what was on for lunch or dinner except when we recognized yams or sweet potato on the menu. Breakfast was always rice or millet porridge. It was so slimy you had to add a lot of water and lemon to swallow it. On Sunday, we had bread at lunch and dried fish for dinner. On Christmas and Easter, lemonade was added to the meal, but while waiting for that, I discovered that I had become an object of desire. Everything about me was referred to as feminine. My voice was so thin and soft that I was nicknamed Eros. I fell into a deep psychological chasm in which I saw my manhood denied. I looked at other boys with envy. They at least did not look like girls. 
One of the priests, Father Lamartin, had taken a special liking to me, but I never understood its nature until far later. He was the tall, fat priest from Holland, the one we called Sir Beerus. His eyes were so blue and distant, they seemed as if they did not belong to him, and he had the look of someone who is permanently bedazzled and about to be upset. One evening, while everybody was gathered for a spiritual lecture, Father Lamartine, my Latin teacher, called me into his office. He was holding a stick, and his face was scarlet. As soon as I came into the room, he closed the door and said, You are a lazy boy, and I must teach you to obey. Take your clothes off. I looked at the stick in his hands, and my blood went hot. I was ashamed of taking my clothes off in front of a person so heavily dressed, but more seriously, I did not want to show him the two apples growing on my chest. He roared at me again, and I understood that there was nothing I could do but obey. So I took my shirt off first, unzipped my shorts and let them fall to my feet, and looked at him imploringly. His eyes protruded so hard that in a snap, my underwear was down. I was so ashamed that I had to lower my eyes. I felt like I would rather die a hundred deaths then stand like this in front of someone. After a moment that seemed like an eternity, Father Lamartine came to me and touched my breasts. They were so sensitive and so painful that I emitted a light sound. Do they hurt? Yes, Father. He caressed them. Do they still hurt? Yes, Father. How did you get them? I don't know, Father. It just happened. He sat, and then made me lie down on his lap while he slashed me on the back with his stick, speaking words that I did not understand. The beating did not hurt, and I wondered why he was going through all this trouble to tell me that I should work harder in his Latin class. When he was done, he had me sit on his legs facing him, and he put his arms around me. <sighs> My goodness. At that time, he was a different person, soft, tender, and protective. I closed my eyes. I did not want to see his face. Meanwhile, the students had finished their spiritual lecture and were going to the refectory for dinner. Those who knew me and Father Lamartine came walking by the office looking like they were searching for something. Father Lamartine ordered me to dress and leave. Did he hurt you? Antoine asked outside the office. No. Yes, he did. You're trying to hide it. No, he hit me, but it didn't hurt. He hit you where? On the back. Did you take your clothes off? He ordered me to. The bastard. He's done that to others. Be careful. The other students began joking with me. They said I was Father Lamartine's girlfriend and asked when he was going to marry me and take me to France. That didn't bother me nearly so much as the experience itself. The shame for me was to have stood naked in front of a priest. Similar things happened, not just with Father Lamartine, but with older students who broke into the dorm in the middle of the night and would threaten to kill you if you made a noise or told anyone what happened. Everybody in the dorm knew what went on at night, but no one dared say a thing about it except in jokes about so-and-so being the girlfriend of such-and-such. Such. It was a nightmare to be young and good-looking in that divine institution. I longed to grow up and prayed that my breasts would go down as the doctor had said they would. 
these experiences made me stupid in class and absent-minded in church. I did not know who to pray to, as I felt God had betrayed me in some deep and unforgivable way. I only wished I could find an opportunity to show him my contempt. I became gloomy, dreaming of a better world in which no one could rape anyone, and where no boy would look like a girl or be misnamed as a girl. The God who made this possible was a dreadful God. One night, Father Lamartine called me once again into his office right before lights out. After the now familiar ritual beating on the butt and the squeezing and heavy breathing, I asked as he dismissed me if I should confess my sin on Friday. Every student was supposed to confess on Friday afternoon and be absolved from the sins committed during the week. Most sins, or confessable sins, were venial. They ranged from eating in excess to having negative intentions against a neighbor to personal feelings like laziness, carelessness, or forgetfulness. These sins were mechanically absolved by the priest while we recited our act of contrition by rote. Father Lamartine jumped to his feet and became red. He mumbled a few words that sounded like curses to me and said no. Then, as if realizing that he might have gone too far, he composed his voice and asked, Why do you think this is a sin? I don't know. Am I fine then? Of course you are fine. Have you ever talked about this at confession? No, I wanted to ask you first. You did a good job. You don't confess sins that are not sins. Who is your confessor? Father Remy, don't talk to him about this. I'll take care of it myself. As I walked to my dorm, my mind was working hard, trying to understand why Father Lamartine did not want me to confess that I had stood naked in front of him several times in his own office. The nakedness for me was a sin. The rest, I didn't know about. Why didn't Father Lamartine think I should confess what he ordered me to do when he considered such simple things as being awake in bed when one should be asleep a sin? I was not afraid. I was only beginning to understand something dreadful about life in a Catholic boarding school.